On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for the other Scott, we're going to have a theme today, economics, because we're going to start by talking about the Canadian Taxpayers Federation referring to the big cities of this country saying, we need money from the province or from the federal government. The other proposal that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is making, how about you cut your own budgets and cut some things back so you don't need all that money? Interesting position. We're going to be talking about the Commonwealth Games bid that Hamilton may or may not make. A councillor who likes the idea, a councillor who doesn't like the idea. They both join us. And we will talk about the federal spending overview from Bill Morneau, the finance minister today. What is our current financial state in this country? We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The uh, financial snapshot of our country is going to be released this afternoon. What um, what are we expecting? Should we be clenching our teeth and crossing our fingers and maybe hiding under our desks like when back in the 50s when they had the, uh, the bomb practices? Is, is that how desperate things are going to be for our economy? Well, we'll find that out. And later, we'll have the Ford press conference, of course. And later, I want to hear from you on the mask bylaw that Hamilton is apparently bringing in that says you will have to wear a mask in public places. Agree or disagree? We'll ask you about that one. First of all, though, today, as we get started, I'm sure by now, if you've been listening to this program, Bill Kelly's program, reading the paper, following the news on CHCH, whatever, you are familiar with the financial situation the city of Hamilton is in. Now, by law, Ontario municipalities, Ontario cities are not permitted by law to run an operating deficit. They could borrow money to build a building, but they can't borrow money to pay the day-to-day bills, salaries and things like that. Yet because of COVID, we are now told that we're staring at something between a $60 million and $122 million operating deficit, which means we've got to find that money. And the options for this are not pretty. Uh, apparently, every $9 million of debt or of more spending that we have in the city, it's a 1% increase in property tax. So this means just on the amount, if we're at $122 million, that's a 14% increase next year. And that's before we include salary increases for staff and other things that always come down the pipe. So we could be looking at 15 16 17% increase next year. Now, the city will, of course, dip into reserves to help get rid of this, to lower it, not get rid of it, but to lower it. But there's something else here. Mayor Fred Eisenberger and other big city mayors are asking the province and federal governments to bail them out. They want tens of millions of dollars to get out of this hole. But considering, and we're going to talk about this later in the show with our financial update, considering the country is running a $300 billion deficit, and the province, I think, is, I don't even know what the number is. We'll find out what the provincial deficit is. Um, Who knows if that's coming, which brings us to one other option, one that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is proposing. Rather than asking for more money, how about cities make cuts like households would do when facing a financial crisis? Well, Jasmine Moulton is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She joins me now. Jasmine, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. And by the way, I don't know if I'm telling a tale out of school. I love this. Jasmine is just newly married, and I talked to her. Congratulations, (laughs) by the way. And when I called her earlier, she answered by her non-married name. She's that newly married that she got her name (laughs) wrong. You'll you'll get used to it. Jasmine Moulton with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks, as I say. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Um, You have said that, and I want to read you your quotes. I find an interesting quote. You've said that municipalities are peddling a false binary 
to deal with holes in their budget. What do you mean by that? So they like to tell us that uh, either they raise taxes or they cut services, or in this case, that, you know, they get bailed out by another government and that those are the only options. But they're leaving out a really glaringly obvious option, which is, why don't you rein in your own spending? Um, there's a lot of opportunities, certainly at the city of Hamilton, um, that, you know, you take a quick glance, like you already mentioned uh, just before I joined. Today uh, and next month, they'll be considering bids to host the Commonwealth Games in Hamilton. Well, that's a lot of money that if you're saying you need a bailout right now from the federal and provincial government, um, or else you're going to, you know, rain taxes tax hikes down on the citizens of Hamilton, um, you know, you need to start saving some of the reckless spending that you've got going on in the city instead of uh, raising taxes, because uh, as I'm sure you and I will get into, uh, taxpayers right now are in no position for massive tax hikes. No, and I do want to get into that in a second. Just first, though, because the idea that, um, that cuts can be made, I know there are people listening who will say, well, wait a second, uh, pretty much every program that the city does or that cities do are essential. If you start cutting, you're going to be hurting the little people. Well, what do you say to that? I mean, are, are, do you believe that cities have a lot of fat in their budget that could be cut? So people who love big government uh, and, and say that there's no department that we could cut, um, that's a really easy way to get around. The obvious answer is that you don't eliminate necessarily one entire department or one entire program. But if you skim a little bit off the top of each, um, then you can find a lot of savings that way. But as long as we're talking about the little guy, you know, the average Joe taxpayer in Hamilton, let me talk about government employees because they're earning a 10.3% wage premium compared to people outside of government. So um, first and foremost, I would say government employee compensation is an obvious area where the city of Hamilton mm -hmm. can find savings. So I took a quick look before the show and Hamilton has nearly 2,000 government employees on its sunshine list from last year alone, which is up from 5% the year before. So for your listeners who may not be familiar, the sunshine list is a list of city employees, um, you know, paid by tax dollars that earn over $100,000 a year. And for the 2,000 people uh, in Hamilton that work for the government who earn over 100000 a year, the average earning is $124,000. And the top 10 earners in Hamilton on government payroll earn 250000 or more a year. So government employee compensation is an obvious area where we can save money. Um, but another area I'd point out is, you know, just the obvious wasteful spending or, or you know, bad priorities that the city has. Like I said, um, you know, right now the city is considering a Commonwealth Games bid. Um, a lot of politicians who are really hopeful <laughs> will tell you that, you know, that will pay for itself through through investment. But, you know, I'm tired of hearing politicians say that um, things will pay for themselves. Justin Trudeau said that federally about the budget, that it would balance itself. And we see how that worked out as we approach a trillion dollars in debt. Um, and then also at the city of Hamilton earlier this year, uh, city politicians conducted a pilot project to see if bringing dogs and cats to work would improve employee morale. So this is just a blatant waste of taxpayer money. This is complete disrespect for taxpayers who right now are gravely struggling uh, with the job losses from COVID-19. You mentioned um, the, the sunshine list. You mentioned or, uh, public employees who are making lots of money. The, the 
what I don't understand, and I mean, I get your point. And I think a lot of people are nodding saying, yeah, way too many. And I think we have something like 7,500, 65 or 70 or 6,500 or 7,500 municipal employees in this city. But we can't simply say we're going to dock their pay or lower their pay because they're making 10 and a half percent more than public or than private employees because they have unions. So, and, and I will assure you, and I'm positive that you would agree that they're not going to willingly say, oh, sure, take 10% off the top. So how do we deal with this? Look, I think you have a big problem, uh, democratically speaking, if an if a elected government, a democratically elective government can't rein in uh the pay of uh, government employees. They absolutely should be able to do that. I know that in Ontario, for example, when uh, Doug Ford tried to rein in teacher pay, they took him to court and, and that will have to be dealt with in the courts. But I think absolutely that our elected officials should be able to control government employee compensation. And why shouldn't they be able to give them a 10% pay cut? I took a 10%, I took a 15% pay cut, and I'm lucky enough still to even have a job. If you look at, uh, for example, in Hamilton, 46,000 Hamilton jobs were lost from March to May because of COVID-19. So that's not just people taking a pay cut, that's people who lost their jobs. And you know, many more people had hours reduced, for example. And when you look at the disparity between government and private sector, the vast majority of COVID-related job losses happened in the private sector. Um, in Hamilton, if you look, um, the main area that was affected was accommodation and food services, decreased employment by 13%. Manufacturing is down by 10% since the start of COVID. But then if you look at one of the only areas to increase uh, employment rates during COVID-19 was in public administration. Even though the courts were closed, daycares were closed, public transit was greatly reduced, we're seeing a lot of unfairness, I believe, between government employees and, and the rest of us that live in reality. And I think it's time government <clears throat> tightened their belts because it's not fair that taxpayers alone bear the entire burden of COVID-19. Well, uh, yeah, you know what, earlier in the COVID situation, and this is outside of Ontario, it's outside of Hamilton, but in Alberta, um, they tried, Jason Kenney tried to cut some public employee jobs and Rachel Notley, the former premier, now the opposition leader, uh, said it was outrageous and unconscionable was her word that the provincial government would make job cuts. And and I do think there's a lot of people who say, wait a second, if I think your numbers are 87% of the job losses or the hours cut are private sector, why are government jobs untouchable? I don't want anyone to lose their job, but we're in an unprecedented time, which we hear often. Why are government jobs untouchable or why is it unconscionable to get rid of a government job in a position where they are not really working at full steam right now? Absolutely. And if you think about who ultimately is going to end up bearing the burden for this, because we're racking up debt at just an incredible rate. Ontario is approaching $400 billion in debt, one of the largest subnational debtors on the planet. Canada is approaching a trillion dollars in debt. Uh, we're clearly not paying this off any time in our life, lifetime. So this is debt that's going to be passed on to the next generation. Children uh, today should not have to bear the debt of their parents. That's, in my opinion, that's what's unethical and immoral here. So we really have, I think, a duty to the next generation to get our finances in order. If there are government employees, you know, bureaucrats sitting twiddling their thumbs in their offices right now, um, you know, like I said, many government offices or government operations have been closed down during COVID, yet these people remain on the payroll. This isn't uh, fair. This isn't responsible to the next generation. Um, and like I said, taxpayers, um, 
the unemployment rate in Hamilton right now is 10.3%. Most job losses were outside of government. So now you have far fewer taxpayers holding up not one level of government, but three levels of government. So when Hamilton is asking, Hamilton and all the other municipalities in Ontario are asking the federal government and the provincial government to bail them out. Well, there are three levels of government and one taxpayer. So this really just comes down to, um, you know, beleaguered taxpayers who are struggling right now. They've lost their jobs. Uh, Hamilton already increased property taxes by 3% in its budget this year, um, you know, which will add another uh, $121 to the average municipal property tax bill. Um, if they go around to putting taxes to pay back the COVID losses, like you pointed out, that could add $600 to the average property tax bill. So I would encourage all of your listeners to uh, encourage their municipal councillors, look, taxpayers are tapped out. We need you to tighten your belt like the rest of us are doing. But we know, and, and I, I don't want to be cynical, but we know that when things are cut, People freak out, especially now on social media, people freak out and politicians read the social media and they respond because one thing we know is an absolute truism is you don't get elected by cutting stuff. You get elected by giving people stuff and politicians want to get reelected. So I, while I see your points, absolutely. And I agree with almost all of them. I, I see almost 0% chance that anybody would follow through with this. Well, I sincerely hope that, uh, that, um, the people in office in Hamilton and all across, uh, not only, you know, in Hamilton, but the rest of the province, um, we know that, like, this is this has been proved uh, by studies um, from the University of Toronto, from the Fraser Institute. Uh, government employees uh, earn more, retire sooner, have better benefits um, and, you know, better pensions than the rest of us. Uh, this was a fairness issue before COVID-19. So I certainly hope that uh, our political leaders in Hamilton, but, you know, beyond Hamilton as well, have, um, you know, have the courage to to address this issue. For so long, they've been bullied by uh, public sector unions. Um, but taxpayers are at a breaking point. This is the sharpest economic downturn on record. So if they didn't have the courage to stand up to uh, these public sector unions, who oftentimes hold a monopoly um, bargaining position, um, which creates a whole other set of problems, they need the courage to stand up to them now and say, look, taxpayers are strapped, uh, you know, for the ones that still have a job, which are lucky to have a job, um, you know, they can't continue to keep uh, holding up this massive governmental overhead. Jasmine, for for a number of years now uh, here on the radio, I have argued, look, I, I'm not even in favor of firing government workers or laying off. I don't want people to lose their jobs, but I've argued for a long time, why is it that the city with, as I say, it's either 65 or 7,500 employees. I can't remember off the top of my head. Why can we not put an austerity program in that says for the next three, four years, we're going to have a hiring freeze. So when people retire, when people move on to a different job, we simply don't replace them to get the numbers down. But even that does not seem to be an acceptable thing because then people say, well, then, you know, people have to work harder or programs, they, they're not qualified on and on. And there's always a number of reasons. It, it's never made sense to me that, that we're now in this position and we, our response is to go to other levels of government to bail us out rather than saying we have a responsibility here ourselves. I don't get it. Um, I think a lot of people listening don't get it. Uh, you do. A lot of people listening will, but yeah, we, we will see. I, I don't see this changing. I don't see the position changing that we are going to rely, hopefully rely on 
other forms of government to get us out of this mess. I, I honestly don't see that position altering anytime soon. Well, here's the hoping it will. Uh, certainly, Justin Trudeau has no sort of sense of um, limited uh, funds. He's always handing out money any chance he gets. Um, but fortunately, uh, you know, Doug Ford uh, was elected on a promise to, um, you know, respect the taxpayer, to bring back hopefully some common sense. Um, to Ontario. And he, uh, I was a little bit disappointed when um, what he did instead of uh, freezing public sector wages, which I think he should have done at least until the budget was balanced. uh, He gave them a 1% raise, all government employees in Ontario, a 1% raise every year for the next three years. So as you'll recall, we heard a lot of uh, hollering from uh, Ontario's teachers unions for the past, you know, eight months while school was still in session about how unfair it was that they were only getting a 1% raise. Um, but then COVID comes around. The uh, provincial changes everything. Uh, it changes everything. But you didn't hear them complain about the 1% raise that they got, quietly ex- decided to finally accept in the middle of COVID-19, as most other Ontarians were having their uh, job hours reduced or they lost their jobs entirely. So I think this is a fairness issue. Um, and look, we, I have an immense amount of respect for, for government employees. I think certainly, you know, in healthcare and a number of other sectors, they've really worked hard, um, worked hard to keep us safe and, and healthy throughout, uh, you know, the past three months. Um, but, but if you keep their pay um, and at a sustainable uh, rate, that means that we can protect those services into the future. If you can't even uh, give pay raises, um, you know, just because you're being pressured by a few unions, you put their jobs and the uh, health and safety of all Ontarians at risk. Because if Jasmine, we got to jump in. Sadly, Jasmine, I got to sure. jump in because we're late. But thank you, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate you bringing this up, and, and it's something that I, I hope that City Council is going to talk about. Fingers crossed. Jasmine Moulton from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are hearing lots of talk now, lots of debate, lots of discussion around the idea of Hamilton hosting the 2026 Commonwealth Games. With strong feelings emerging now on both sides and seemingly very little of the strong feelings actually having anything to do with sports. It's about the cost, it's about the infrastructure, it's about a lot of other things. Wanted to bring in a couple of counselors this next segment to offer some various couple views, at least, on where they stand on this thing right now. Uh, first up today, uh, Ward 5 Counselor Chad Collins joins us. Chad, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Scott? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is turning into, uh, I'm not even going to say about the stadium and LRT and all those, I don't think we're there yet, but it is turning into an interesting debate that has seen some lines drawn on council. For, for the record, right now, as of July 8, 2020, where do you stand on Commonwealth Games? I'm definitely against it at this point. I, I had reservations going into the process when the request was made of council for the group to uh, to make a bid submission for Commonwealth. And um, as was highlighted by our staff in the first report, you know, we, we had some very substantial issues related to make the city making an investment in the in the games. Traditionally, the games come with uh, three-party agreements between the province, the feds, and municipalities, and there's always a request from municipalities to make a substantial investment. They need to have skin in the game. Obviously, many of those facilities um, will belong to the city when, when the games uh, are held, and then, and then they move on. 
And so there is a requirement for capital. And our staff were quite clear when the first report was presented that if you're going down this road, there will be substantial costs that come with it. The range is between 200 and 300 million dollars. And there was also note in that same report that we were essentially almost at our debt levels right now as it relates to our borrowing capacity and, and where our credit rating is. And it's in a very good spot right now. But passing the council policy that we have in terms of taking on new debt would have an impact on our ability to fund regular issues that are in our capital budget, like the existing rec centre upgrades, libraries, things of that nature. And it also may jeopardize, it may jeopardize the city's credit rating. So for those reasons, I... I cautiously supported where we were going um, with all of that in the back of my mind. And then, of course, with the pandemic, things have certainly changed. We had 20% of the community couldn't make a tax payment um, just a month ago. We know the city's looking at a 60 million deficit for this year, and there will be one next year as well. And I would think it's anyone's guess, Scott, in terms of how long we're going through this. But from a financial perspective, what's occurring today will be felt by all levels of government at least for a decade in terms of the deficits that are being run, the programs that are being offered at the provincial and federal levels. And we don't know what's in store for us in, in 2021 or 2022. So the city, under, under, under good times, would have had trouble supporting this. And now during the pandemic, there's just no question that the city does not have the financial capacity or the ability to make those types of investments. And just to be clear, are you a hard no on this right now for any municipal money at all? Or if between the federal government, provincial government, and private sector, it got down to a very low amount, would you say, okay, then we're interested? I mean, is it a, is it a zero sum right now? Well, I don't, even, I don't think that's possible. I, you know, I've, I've watched and read with interest other communities going through this, um, whether it's Pan Am, Commonwealth, even the Olympics here in Canada, and very rarely, and in fact, I've never seen a situation where it's been low or no cost to the municipality. So I'd be very neither have I, that. neither have I. But yeah. the group that's bringing this forward has, uh, as part of their pitch, and I don't think they've said zero, but they have many times said this will be heavily, heavily private sector, little, little uh, on the city to bear this. Now I don't know what little actually means in terms of dollars. Yeah. Um, is there a number there? Or do you say no, no? We just can't afford it, no matter what. Well, I, I think whatever they're coming forward with is going to be in the tens of millions. Right now, we're talking hundreds of millions, even tens of millions of dollars for the municipality will be problematic. They're not going to come forward and say, we're asking for a million bucks. That just isn't right. going to happen. So if it's in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, which is cert most certainly going to be the case, um, it's it's a no. We just can't afford it. And, and I, I'll be interested to see if this progresses. And I, and I don't believe that there is support on council to go forward, but I may be surprised with that. Um, I don't, I don't, I'd be very surprised to see what to the implications are for the city's capital budget. Staff were very clear at the, the outset of this process that things that are in the list right now will have to come out. So who in the community is going to surrender improvements to their recreation centers, which may be 30 or 40 years old? Who in their, in, on council is going to take roads and sidewalks off the list in order to make this happen? I mean, it's, you know, we have an infrastructure deficit and our current capital budget tries to address those issues and, and it and it takes a long time to get these things through so if you're if your rec center it needs upgrades it may take five to ten years to get to the top of the list and and so i'll be surprised to see if there's anyone on council who's willing to sacrifice core community services and capital projects to make commonwealth happen the the group that's bringing it forward though they have long stressed that this is um i, I hate to even say less about the games themselves this is a an infrastructure and a city building project is how they frame it. And they, their argument would be, 
yes, things are really, really bad right now. But this is something for a number of years, 2026, we're talking five years down the road. And by then, this would be the impetus, this would be the incentive to get the city up and rolling again and come out of this COVID problem much quicker. What do you say to that? Well, many of them are new facilities. And so we're struggling to pay for the ones that we have now. I mean, if you add three, four or five facilities to the list, you're, you're bound to pay for two things. You're bound to pay for a contribution towards the new construction. You're also bound to pay for the operating. And so many of the projects and in, in capital projects that were on the list that were presented to us um, were new. Some are taking advantage of existing facilities, and, and there certainly is a benefit there. I don't discount that if there are some housing that using units that come our way, um, I, you know, that's certainly a benefit to the city. But any new facilities come with an operating cost and, and then is added to the list of those facilities that the city is required to pay for over an extended period of time. I'm not aware of of those new facilities being a part of our, our 10-year capital project or, or budget right now, Scott. So the dilemma is you're adding more projects onto an already um, exhaustive list in terms of those that need repair and upgrades. And anytime you build new, you're stretching your dollars thinner over time, and, and it just becomes another financial, I don't want to call it a burden because many of these are assets, but it just makes your job a lot more difficult as it relates to maintaining existing facilities and paying for the operation of existing facilities as well. You're making these comments on the same week that we just had a council meeting talking about the city possibly being on the hook to repair the stadium that's only five or six years old. Mm -hmm. Does that factor into your decision? We look at a brand new hundred and what was, I don't know, $125, $130 million stadium and we're already talking about millions of dollars of repairs that ties into what you're saying but does that factor into your decision that any new well, facilities are going yeah. to have similar things absolutely and i think that you i uh, listened to part of your program at that point in time and you, you highlighted the fact that it was a, a provincial um project um in very unique circumstances and i pointed to that those circumstances as well as an example as to why i had reservations about commonwealth in many cases, we do not control our own destiny when we're a part of these games. Pan Am's a great example. You highlighted that on your show very succinctly and appropriately. And it was a situation where it's almost a situation where you're renovating your house and you hand the keys to someone and say, send me the bill at the end of this. And you have no say while they're doing the renovations as to what tiles you're going to use or what carpet you're going to install or what kind of uh, shingles you're going to use for your roof. You receive the keys back. And essentially, you're on the hook for anything that goes wrong from that point. There's no warranty for any of the stuff that you just had done. And that's what happened with Stadium. And so we were bitten by that. We're still feeling the pain years after the, that those games have come and gone. There's certainly a benefit. We have a, a, a new stadium. Um, but it, 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 it's come with all kinds of issues. And those same issues um, will exist for, for Commonwealth as they did for Pan Am. And so I'm, do we want to put the community through that again in terms of here are the keys to city facilities, uh, Infrastructure Ontario. You upgrade them. We'll have no part in terms of what contractors you use, and we'll have trouble getting from you resources for things that don't go right during the process. I mean, it's... We've had a long, though, Chad, we've had a long discussion going on in the city about LRT, and one of the underlying foundational yep. arguments for LRT is yeah, but we're going to get this paid for by other levels of government. Would the same argument not apply here that, yeah, you know what, there may be some glitches, but we can get housing, we can get facilities, we can get other things paid for by other levels of government, and it'll cost us some, but not nearly what it would cost us if we did it ourselves. Well, we'd need a half an hour to go through that LRT issue, but I would say this, that <laughs> the LRT project, again, 
is an issue about something that's new infrastructure that many people in this community, including myself, would say it's not required or needed. And I would point to some of the facilities that are being um, suggested as part of the Commonwealth fall into that same category. Um, would they be nice to have? Absolutely. Wouldn't it be terrific to see some of these new facilities in operation from youth to seniors and everybody in between? Absolutely. Can we afford it? No. <laughs> so the same applies to LRT. Does it look good? Yeah, it looks nice. Do other communities, some communities have them and they're being used? Absolutely. But it, for me, it, it's the choice between a new LRT or, or investing in, in our current conventional transit system, HSR. I'm all for investing in HSR. Obviously, transit right now is an upside down world in terms of what the pandemic, pandemic has done to ridership. But I would suggest there are more strategic investments to make from an infrastructure and transit perspective rather than LRT. So you're left with legacy costs. You're left with someone builds it for you and you're required to maintain it. And you're also required to pay for its operation. And I would say that LRT, similar to the Commonwealth, are projects that are unaffordable and the community doesn't have the capacity to pay for. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. So there is one, one perspective from the no side. We don't need the Commonwealth Games, too expensive, city can't afford it. All right, now the other side, I think. I could be surprised, but I believe that my next guest who's on council has a different view from that. Ward 14 Councillor Terry Whitehead joins us. Now, Terry, thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's great to be with you and your listeners. Would I be correct that you are uh, more enthusiastic than Councillor Collins about the idea of a Commonwealth Games? I, I, would, I would suggest that there's a stark contrast on this particular subject matter, yes. Okay, and so explain your enthusiasm for the idea, because we just heard him explain why it shouldn't happen. Tell us why it should. Well, and, and I have some of the same, um, uh, let's be clear for your listeners, that I am the only councillor, this last term of council, that did not vote for the tax increase, which was, in fact, above the cost of inflation. The reason I didn't do that is because I was concerned about the COVID hitting and not knowing what the impacts would be on the next budget year. And you wanted to have a solid foundation and to alleviate what we have accomplished to date was concerning. So I want to make sure that's on record. I am a tax writer, but I am taking a responsible decision at this time. Okay, so why, that, that being said... The Commonwealth Games, I think we would agree, will cost the city some money. So why would this be a good idea? Why would this be good money spent? Being to Manchester, uh, uh, being to uh, South Africa, and I can tell you that the, uh, the transformational change uh, that can be uh, leveraged through uh, these type of games is absolutely astounding. And for those who have never experienced it or seen it, um, it's unfortunate because they are not... Uh, speaking from a point of strength. Now, here's the question. We have a capital outlay planned for the next 10, 15, 20 years. We have a growth, population growth that's anticipated, needs anticipated in regards to new infrastructure, uh, new rec centers, new fields, etc. throughout this community. And I can tell you uh, that we are one of the few communities at 500,000 plus that do not own a full-fledged Olympic pool. Is that a shame? Um, currently, the only one that exists at MAC. There's smaller communities that have bigger pools than Hamilton. It's just a shame. Now, what kind of community do you want? I, I want a community that inspires. I want a community that role models thrive from. I want a community that there's healthy living. What does all that? 
Well, I'll tell you something. Tiger Woods, when he went to golf, it was more African, uh, Afro-American golfing. And, 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 and children from all like walks of life picked up golf because of that one man. Now, when you have successful uh, athletes coming out of your schools, your school systems, your athletic systems, and your communities. You have a sense of pride. And when there's success, you create a whole new stream of healthy living, role models, and so forth. I think that you can't live life just to pay the bill. You need to live life that inspires people to live a healthy life, create discipline, and hope. And that's why I think now, the Commonwealth I... game is the greatest thing uh, that can do that if we take the leadership and control that outcome. For example, Jerry, let me jump. Let me let me jump in for one second. I get to the housing in a second. Point: We do Jerry, have a shortage on. of affordable housing. How can we leverage like Toronto did with the Pan Am, using dollars that we wouldn't be able to spend otherwise? Let's be clear: for every dollar we spend, if everything goes well, we're getting two dollars from the other levels of government, even more than that. So, this Jerry, is let me jump in for a second, if I can. Jerry, hello. Infrastructure, uh, uh, to, uh, those kind of dollars to pay for the infrastructure. For the most part, you would have to pay for anyway. That's why you have to be selective, tactical, and strategic. You need to ensure that you go into your neighborhoods that are uh, at risk or have issues and challenges and provide them every opportunity for training and and being engaged in the games uh, so they get a a good kickoff in regards to their futures. I think there's lots of opportunity here. Terry, I agree with your position that athletes and people who do well in society inspire kids. I agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. My question is, even with that, though, and even with the idea that maybe a Commonwealth Games or these kind of things could do that, at other times, it would seem, I think, for a lot of people to make more sense. But we're now looking at the barrel down the barrel of a 60 million up to 120 million dollar deficit just this year, not to mention, I think it's a three billion dollar infrastructure deficit already. How do we possibly afford it? Well, and that's why I said, first of all, um uh, it's not going to take rocket science to figure out that, uh, uh, just like in many um, states and, and countries around the world, uh, that the, 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 the higher level forms of government uh, have to come in uh, and, and help out the municipalities because we don't print money, right? We don't print money. We don't have the, we have a static tax base. Uh, and there's no way that we can cover these deficits. Uh, so hopefully, uh, we're according to COI. We will have uh, a good, significant part of those deficits that were created directly as a result of COVID. Uh, a lot of those costs should be picked up, fingers crossed. Now, if not, then that's a different story. But, you know, that's the beauty about this process, because don't be surprised if the uh, bucket loses its bottom uh, financially. I won't be supporting the Commonwealth Games. So this is an issue that we're not committing to money yet, right? Let's be clear. We stretch this issue out to the point where there's no more off-ramps and uh, we, we, the voters got to be cast. Right now, there's no reason to get off this uh, off supporting Commonwealth until we get all the information. One, one more thing. I, I wish we had a lot more time, and we will do this more down the road. But one more thing for right now. Uh, in the meeting yesterday or the day before, I can't remember now when this came up, uh, Councillor Brad Clark asked an interesting question that I, 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 I would like you to answer as well. And that is, he pointed out that right now, as far as we know, we are the only city that is interested in this. And his question was, if this is offering all the benefits that we hear it is, why are other cities not lining up for an opportunity to host the Games? Well, we're going to find that out. And that's why uh, we, we 
voted to have the delegation come in to uh, speak to the um, to the council. Uh, but and I think the answer will be represents from the international. But you know things have gone wacky in regards to scheduling. I mean the Olympics aren't even being held in the, in, in the traditional year. Um, uh, FIFA uh, has changed its schedule too. I suspect that there's international, other big worldly international games that will not be able to participate in the Commonwealth because of the way things are lining up for that particular year. And I think it's just one of those anomalies. Um, but we'll get better explanation um, down the road. But for 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 Councillor Clark to suggest that, um, you know, I, I was there uh, when the spectator picked up the bid, and uh, there was like three or four cities in maybe five cities originally involved in that bid. Uh, it was very in 2010. Yeah, we lost. Uh, it's always going to be competitive because there is a net benefit. Now, the good news is, unlike the Olympics. Uh, and I'll, you know, hopefully they'll 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 get it. The Commonwealth is becoming much more utilitarian. It's it's understanding the limits of the capacities of municipalities uh, and, and countries to host these things. So I think you're going to see uh, a rebranding and a, a whole different approach uh, to structures and and the games uh, moving forward with the uh, I would say the new context that everyone has come to realize. Ward 14, Councillor Terry Whitehead, I appreciate the time. We will talk about this more down the road, I guarantee you. Thank you for your time today. No problem. Thank you. Which of those two opinions, Councillor Collins or Councillor Whitehead, do you more lean towards? Send me a note, Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley at 900CHML.com. I would love to hear from you, hearing those two, where you stand at this moment. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Snapshot moment from Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Not a budget. They've stressed this is not a budget. Apparently things are way too fluid for that. Don't really know what the real numbers are yet. We're going to get a a snapshot, a broad strokes picture of where our finances are at this moment. Um, And what's the answer to where our finances are at this moment? Um, I think if there was one sound that would probably describe them, it would be, (laughs) I don't think anyone's too optimistic about where our finances are at this moment. Not necessarily anyone's fault. We didn't anticipate COVID. We didn't ask for COVID. Things have happened, but still it has, uh, it has generated some, um, some difficulties, shall we say, uh, by all accounts. Our federal deficit this year is going to exceed $300 billion. Remember once upon a time, long ago in the good old days when Justin Trudeau shocked everybody by saying our deficit was going to be $10 billion? And we went, ah, $10 billion, $300 billion is our deficit projected this year. And our federal debt is now projected to cross the $1 trillion, with a T, $1 trillion threshold this year. That is the reality. The big question then becomes, what now? Well, Ian Lee is the, with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us now. Ian, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, uh, Scott, for inviting me. Let's go to that question right off the bat. So what now? Well, I mean, we, we kind of know where we are. What now? Uh, you're exactly right. That is the uh, strategic question, the existential question. Where do we go from here? Uh, I um, I do not believe they're going to announce in a five minutes or ten minutes from now. I, I don't believe he's going to announce any response yet, meaning he's not going to announce tax increases. He's not going to announce austerity or downsizing of the public service. I do believe that we are going to, the hammer is going to fall 
next spring winter uh, winter spring when the budget the actual formal full-fledged budget is announced whether it's february or march or april yet to be determined and i do believe that we are going to see significant tax increases at that time possibly hst increase in the sales tax or value-added tax whatever you want to call it uh and also in income taxes uh, and in addition we could be seeing uh, some serious downsizing of the public service. The former clerk, Michael Warnock, who only resigned a few months ago, but that was the Lavalon thing, um, but he was 35, 40 years in the public service. He appointed or was involved in the appointment of most of the deputy ministers. He's an Ottawa guy, very plugged in. And he gave an interview in the Ottawa Citizen newspaper just last week saying expect significant uh, cuts in the federal public service in the next budget. So to answer your question, I think we'll see tax increases, both sales tax and income tax increases at the federal level, as well as uh, cuts to programs which will involve uh, downsizing of federal public servants. It is a gorgeous day here in Hamilton. The sun is out. Dr. Lee has just brought the gray clouds over. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We all knew that's um, that was coming. It's or will be coming. I, I will ask you this. I don't know that there is a federal government that wants to run an election after announcing massive tax increases exactly. and cuts do you expect then that because that is looming down the road that we will have an election before then i think you just uh, nailed it again um i think that this increases uh, because the numbers are so large that he's uh, that morneau is announcing in in a few minutes 300 billion dollar deficit and just before i answer your question i want to remind everybody that this is not the spending of the government of Canada. The government of Canada's spending was spending before COVID $350 billion a year, year after year. That's what it spends. That's in last year's budget. Uh, $350 billion was what the government of Canada spent in 2019. So this year, with a deficit of $300 billion, that's on top of the $350 billion that they're spending before that. So their government is now spending $650 billion, which is about a third of the totality of the Canadian economy, which is $2 trillion. So $650 billion is about a third of $2 trillion, uh, roughly, in round numbers. I'm rounding here. And um, so my point is is that I, I agree with you. I think that this is going to put in uh, enhanced um, logic to a snap election uh, because I can't see a government waiting until uh, they do a budget deficit that's going to be very, a budget uh, announcement that's going to be a lot of bad news and anger some people and then say, now we're going to have an election, now vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> right now they're way up in the polls, way up. They're up 15, 20 points. And so I would not be at all shocked if they call a snap election in uh, late August, early September for the fall. Bill Morneau, as you say, in a few minutes is going to be giving this update. I am slightly confused about why he's doing this, because if it's not a budget, and if we already, and you've just outlined pretty much everything that I think we already know about this, we know what our finances are. What is the yeah. purpose? Why bother doing this today? Um, I, I think they're doing it because uh, they waited till the summer. People are, you know, it's beautiful out, as you just said. It's beautiful here in Ottawa. It's the, it's high summer now. Uh, we're off at the cottage. I'm not, but many of us are. We're at the, you know, camping, uh, at the parks and so forth. We're not paying attention to politics. So they waited till the middle of the summer because they know the news is, is so bad, so bleak. Um, but they did it to answer your question because um, they have been, I think they're clearing the deck for probably a snap election, and they don't want to be accused of being uh, uh, providing a lack of transparency. And they have been 
are criticized not only by the opposition. Some may say, well, that's expected. The opposition's criticized. But they've been criticized by professors, by me, uh, by think tanks. The C.D. Howe in Toronto, very prestigious. The McDonald laurie Institute here in Ottawa. Um, and other think tanks have criticized them. Media, journalists, people like you have criticized them, saying, look, you're not leveling with us. And, and when they're compared to other countries, other Western OECD high-income wealthy countries, we have been, since COVID started, the absolute least transparent. The other countries, UK, US, France, they're all publishing uh, essentially weekly updates, sometimes daily updates on how much they're spending and, you know, uh, all the critical financial fiscal numbers. And we have been real laggards. And so the fact that they want to get it all out, let it all hang out, to use an old phrase of the 60s, uh, I think that is maybe one more clue or indicator that they may be trying to clear the deck uh, of all these um, potential attacks on them uh, before the election is called, and then that they go into the election and say, look, we, you know, we leveled you. We told the numbers. We gave you the numbers back in July, you know? And uh, so I think that they're, it's a clearing the deck to respond to the criticisms of lack of transparency. In, there are a number of people who, uh, I mean, experts and people in the business world and everyone else who are saying, uh, we also need to hear something that says that some of the emergency actions, these very costly yeah. emergency actions, the CERB, the CEWS, Canada yeah. Emergency Wage Subsidy, need to be reined in now. We can't continue yeah. to have the taps wide open. Uh, the head of the Business Council of Canada said, here was a quote, uh, they were for a health emergency. The health emergency has ended. Some people may take issue with that. Nonetheless, what you're saying, though, is don't expect Bill Morneau to necessarily say any of that stuff is happening right now. Well, that'll come after the election because you cut people off their CERB now. You just tick people off. Um, you're right. Um, uh, and I really, This is a really important issue. The business people have raised it. Think tanks have raised it. I've raised it repeatedly, talking to Scott Thompson, about the lack of an exit strategy. No off-ramp. No indication, no whisper, no clue, no anything about, okay, This everyone knows this is unsustainable. When are you going to tell us it's unsustainable, and how are we going to get out of it? And I suspect he's going to talk in very broad brush terms, and probably there will be a little bit of talking out of both sides of his mouth. And I mean by that he's going to say, don't worry, we're going to make sure that nobody's left behind, everybody's looked after. Oh, and by the way, we will be announcing an exit ramp. So or an exit strategy. And uh, so I don't think we're going to get a lot of details. I, I don't. I don't think they're going to say, okay, on such and such a date, the CERB will uh, come to an end and there will be no renewals. I don't think we're going to see hear that. What we're going to hear is to the effect, don't worry, everybody, the government stands behind you. And then at the same time, they'll say, and we are working to go forward to an exit strategy. They might even surprise us. They might. Uh, I can see it possibly being possible where they announce rolling the CERB and other income or wage support programs into a revamped EI. And I mean by revamped, it's been a lot of criticism of EI. 50% of all the people in Canada don't even qualify for EI in normal times. So a lot of people say it's not doing its job. So I could see them using this as an opportunity to announce rolling it into EI. There is an infrastructure of professional public servants inside EI across the country that evaluate and adjudicate all the applications. And, of course, there is a sunset provision. You can't be on EI forever. It's only, I think it's a year. And... Um, 
And so my point being, they could take this opportunity to say, you know what, we're going to roll all these income support programs, the alphabet soup, and roll them in. I'm not talking the support for corporations, just support for people. Roll it into EI, increase the funding, therefore, to EI, change the rules to EI, and then say, look, we've dealt with the sunset provision, we've dealt with the exit, because EI is, is built in such a way that it's not designed to allow you to stay on it forever. And uh, that would be a very clever way uh, to address these increasing criticisms from many different parts of the country, different quarters of people saying, there's just no end in sight to this, and you haven't dealt with that. This would be a clever way to address that. Say, look, this is an unemployment insurance problem. We're going to fold all these billions and billions of dollars of the CERB support and the others uh, that support income into EI. Then we'll change the rules to make sure that you're covered uh, for a specified period of time, and then we'll go from there. That would certainly take away, and again, prepare uh, the uh, you know prepare the deck, so to speak, set the table for a, a false snap election. That is from the business side of the of the world of the country. Though the other side, there are people who are saying, "Listen, we're hoping that's not going to happen. We're hoping this is the opening to create some longer lasting social programs that transfer wealth and that 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 bake this kind of structural thing into our budget forever." And again, with the election theoretically coming, I'm wondering, do they listen to the business people or do they listen to the social justice, more social activist people well, who say, no, here's your chance to make this permanent? Excellent question. Excellent question. But do keep in mind and um, that the, let's call it, and I like that phrase, you know, the social justice a group or community, um, it, it's not 50% of the population. It's not 70 or 80%. Uh, but it's very loud. You but know, it's very it's loud. It's very loud, but it's a minority. And um, it's, you know, we can quibble, is it 10%, is it 15%, is it 20%? It's, it's, the, it's the left side of the political spectrum, in my opinion. You know, people that support the Greens, people that support the NDP, and some that support the Liberals, yes. But keep in mind that they're the, 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 as Pierre Elliott Trudeau famously called it 50 years ago, the radical center, which is the middle, the famous proverbial middle class that Justin Trudeau talks about all the time, um, uh, uh, most of uh, remember the unemployment rate is right now, I believe, at 11 or could be at 15 percent. Well, that sounds terrible. That means 85 percent of people are employed in the in the workforce, and those are the people paying the taxes. And so they're also. So I think that the uh, the Trudeau government is going to. They're walking a balancing act for sure, walking down the middle because they. It's not just the business community. There's millions and millions of taxpayers who understand they're going to be paying this back with higher taxes. Not just business. And, Do you think, uh, so Ian, sorry to interrupt. Ian, sorry to interrupt think... for one Sorry to interrupt for one second, but I have to jump in right there because okay. you made a point. And, and do you think most people understand or believe they have to pay it back? I'm not convinced that there is that belief that the debt that we're accruing has to be paid back by a lot of people. Um I, I, I think it's a, a, when I say a continuum, I don't like to use these academic words, but um, I think that people that pay taxes or pay a lot of taxes are more aware. And people that, if you look at the like quintile, you know, use that famous phrase, you know, you chop up all the people in Canada, the top 20% are what we call the rich, and the next 20% of the upper and middle class. You get down to the bottom quintile, bottom 20%, and they're what we call the poor. And, and, um, the, I think the, in the three quintiles, the, uh, the top quintile, the second and the third quintile, I think there is a greater recognition. I didn't say it's a perfect recognition. So I'm not, denying what you're saying, I think they're going to try and do both. 
They're going to say, don't worry, we're going to make sure that people that need help are looked after. But I don't think, I mean, Trudeau, I think it was Trudeau or Morneau, just a week ago, ruled out a guaranteed annual income. First off, remember, it's incredibly expensive. The PBO said it would be $95 billion for six months. That's on top of the $350 billion, if you don't even look at COVID spending. If you look at the gov- what the government was spending before COVID, it was spending $350 billion a year. And a GAI would be another $100 billion on top of that for six months. So it's really, really expensive. And uh, so I think they'll probably go for some kind of a targeted approach. In other words, we won't give it to everybody, including people like me that don't need it because I'm a professor and I already have a job. A guaranteed annual income goes to everybody. And they'll probably go the targeted route saying we're going to target those people who need help, which is not everybody. There's many people that don't need help. They've hmm. got a job. They're getting paid. They're, everything's fine. So I think they'll go a, a more targeted approach and say, look, we're going to make sure that the people have lost their jobs and there's no job to go back to. Uh, uh, and that, you know, that, that section that the social justice community is most concerned with, that will become the focus, I think, of their policy announcements. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think going back to the point about debt and whether we pay it back, there's a lot of people who I've heard say, well, you know, it doesn't really, it's just debt. And and it's not the debt, and, and you correct me where I'm wrong, you're the expert here, but it's not the debt that really matters, it's having to pay the interest on the okay. debt. And if last okay. I saw, I believe Ottawa is paying a billion dollars a month to service yeah. our debt, and Ontario yeah. is now going to be paying almost $600 million a year that's money that can't go to hospitals or roads or programs or whatever else that's money we're just burning like the debt matters you're absolutely right and i'm not one of those people that get sort of religious or whatever the word is about oh my goodness we're deeply indebted i'm much more pragmatic and practical about this and and one of the consequences of a bigger debt is you end up paying as you just pointed out very accurately you end up paying a lot more in interest which reduces the money you can put into education or into health care. And there's no free lunch, you know. And and that's assuming interest rates don't go up. And, uh, and you know, people say, well, they're not going to go up. And I just find that silly. Um, full disclosure, in 1980, I, before I became a professor, I was a banker throughout the 70s, early 80s. I was at the Bank of Montreal, Ottawa in 1980 when interest rates hit 20. That's two zero before a decimal point. So when people say interest rates can't go up, that's not true. They did go up. They went up from 8 to 10 to 12 to 14 percent to 16 to 18 and peaked out at 20. Now, I'm not predicting that's going to happen again, but the idea that they're going to be stay per forever at the rate where they're at now, I think is naive. Rates are going to go up. So what? Well, that means you're going to be paying even more interest on the debt. And that was the experience in the 1990s where they were on a debt treadmill. And the debt was compounding and accelerating. And so more and more and more and more and more money was going to interest on the debt. And that was when uh, Paul Martin went down to New York City to the bond markets and they read the riot act to him. And he came back and did the largest downsizing in Canadian history. So it wasn't done for ideology. It was partly done because the bond markets were screaming, saying, we're not going to buy your bonds. And partly because internally in Ottawa, they realized so much money was being diverted into interest on the debt. And and so that there's debt's useful and prudent. It can be used prudently 
for useful things, long-term assets, building bridges and roads, and you know, you and I buying a house, that sort of thing. But you really don't want to get into the situation where you're borrowing just to pay your groceries, or in the government's instance, borrowing just to pay uh, consumption, uh, unemployment insurance, or uh, or CERB. And uh, so they have it's a balancing act, and I think that they're probably trying to deal with that, or will be dealing with that in the months ahead. Um, and this is just the first shot across the bow with the fiscal snapshot uh, today. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Always appreciate the time. Great job today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you. Uh, And as we go to a commercial break here and then the news, something to ponder if you really want to put a gray cloud over underneath or over top of the sunny skies today. With all that Ian just said and all the concerns and everything else, imagine what happens if we end up with a giant second wave and we have to shut the economy down again. No kidding. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.